Untitled Beatles Podcast. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome back. back. <laughs> it's part three of the same topic. Welcome back. Well, your dreams probably died during episode two. <laughs> well, the songs are the same as you've always heard. But deconstructed. But <laughs> deconstructed. We got 10,000 words. Please just don't delete us. Please don't just cancel us. <laughs> Instead, come here and treat us. Like and subscribe. So like and subscribe, and you we won't have to bribe the FCC. <laughs> Tony got in some legal trouble. <laughs> if you know of a way to bribe the government, let us know. <laughs> Up your nose with a rubber hose, TJ. Oh! <laughs> This is part three of our special look at McCartney 321. So I guess this is really episode one because episode one was three. Episode two is two and episode three is one. Yeah. Yeah. And Take it, Tony. Take it, Tony. Welcome to the Untitled Beatles podcast. You know, I'm Tony. Yeah. And I'm TJ. We're thrilled. You know, Tony and I talked about making this a two-parter, but we love this special so much just off air. We were talking about how this feels as important as anthology. It didn't going into it. It was exciting to be sure, but watching this twice in a row and hearing Paul's thoughts on songs he contributed to is astonishing. We may never see anything like it again. Hence our third episode on it. Well, much like star Wars episode four, episode four of McCartney three, two, one is my favorite. Actually, I think empire is my favorite. Scratch that. Uh. 800-588-2300. Empire. Oh, I didn't know that part. 800. That was my favorite <laughs> when they added 800. Sometime in the 90s, they added 800-588-2300. They had to. They had to. Just like we, I mean, yeah, I think next week we're starting to add 800 to the Untitled Beatles podcast hotline. We'll read your palm, and it's free on Palm Sunday, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday. Oh, use your voice thing for that. We'll read your palm, and it's free on Palm oh, Sunday, 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 Sunday. Sunday, Smoking US 30 drag strip with a great one. Well, episode four kicks off with one of my favorite sounds. It's the isolated backwards guitar solo from Tomorrow Never Knows. Immediately, I'm like, I think this is going to be my favorite episode. This will be the one where we get into the silly, the fun stuff, the candy. Well, and this song was written for Mad Men. <laughs> oh. I said you didn't know what was going on. Why you the latest Beatles album? Let's start with this one. Yeah, so it opens up with McCartney talking about the speed of youth and how the engineers were just as young as they were. We've got the excitement of youth mm. and the sort of speed of youth. Yeah. And a lot of the engineers come up with us. Yeah. So they knew how stupid we were and how cheeky we were and how you know, ambitious we were. 
and it rubbed off. Yeah, it shows that uh, audacity you have when you're young to try something out there. Tomorrow Never Knows. Still the most modern-sounding Beatles song I think there is. Yeah, I mean, are you including Honey Don't? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I am including Honey Don't, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently not in mono, nerd. Honey Don't! Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously totally uh, agree with you. It is there's no other Beatles song like it, and no other song in in popular music like Tomorrow Never Knows. It doesn't delve in that too long though. That comes later because we go to Nowhere Man. I feel like watching us a couple times. They're not listening to Nowhere Man. I actually feel like that was edited in after because there's a few clues. The for the first time, Rick Rubin's head nod is off meter. It's just kind of nodding along to a nonsensical beat. When when he's playing with the faders, there's no change in audio, and the sh- there's a shot of Paul fading it down while he's talking, but it's the back of Paul. So I wonder if they were talking about it and the song was added in post to make it seem like it was on the mixing board. That's my Beatle Conspiracy Theory Week. Tinfoil teacher. It seemed legit to me because he's talking about how he had to go through a different few generations of treble to get the, the guitar solo to sound how it sounded. And that was a story I, I didn't know about. I mm-hmm. didn't know about that trick. I thought that was cool. I have always noticed, like, what a cutting solo that is. I didn't know that how they arrived at it. The engineers sort of put full treble on it. And we say, can you do more? They said, well, no, that, that's it. So well, what about if you took that yeah. and put it over to this set of EQs. Couldn't you do, do it all again? Wow. And they'd go, well, you know. <laughs> so we'd have them go through a few channels each time putting this treble on it. It's a nice sound, though. I'm disappointed that he didn't ask Paul in your mind, is Nowhere Man tied to Rubber Soul or Yesterday and Today? <laughs> That's why I didn't do the interview, because I totally been like, all right, Paul, honestly, which do you think the song sounds better on? Definitely Yesterday and Today. Of course. But just the copies where we have the date baby dolls. <laughs> I want a walking, talking, dead and bleeding baby doll. <laughs> no, they weren't bloody. They were... They were meaty. They were covered in meat slime. Pink slime. Pink slime. Yeah, I remember pink Pink slime. slime. All right. (laughs) Get that a lot today. Chill wave. (laughs) Uh, Nowhere Man happens pretty quickly. We go to Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is not a wasted opportunity, but there's a a historical accuracy error in this. Yeah. Do you know what I'm about to give you? (laughs) Are you talking about Mal Evans' anvil work? Mal Evans is playing Anvil in tune. <laughs> what an affront to Michael Lindsay Hogg. <laughs> Anvil. That was our roadie, Mal. Yeah. So we had a, we wanted the sound of an Anvil. Yeah. So, you know, now you just sort of dive it up. We're going to have to watch George's feet because he's tapping away, I think, to help Mal with the tempo and when to come in. 
if George's feet are off time on the, the, the playback, then indeed Mal was off time. But yeah, so uh, the question, did George Martin play piano on this thing? Paul thinks he did. Yeah. Um, is that for sure? Man, I don't know. But according to the guy that was there, and like he seems to know when he does something. He'll own something for sure. So I think you played a lot of the instruments on this one. Yeah, I'm just wondering about the piano, though, because there's these arpeggios. It's a bit flash for me. Makes me think that was George Martin. Because, ah. you know, yeah, yeah. I can play piano, but I'm not that good. And those, I can't even play it right now without a little practice, but those doodle 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 he didn't think was within the realm of his capability. Um, I love, we always thought of George Martin as an old man. He was like 30. That's such a great line because he was such a teacher and such an influence to them. It was a great line to me. And it was also his look. Like he had the tie. The whole time he seemed to be wearing a tie and had his hair slicked back like in a 50s kind of a way. Like he he looked, yeah, he looked like a, a school teacher, but a cool one. You know, yeah, like a school, like a hot school mom, like George Martin's a teacher. You'd come home and be like, I want that hot for teacher. Are you more Van Halen or Van Hagar? Oh, no, I'm Diamond Dave all the way. I, there's some Hagar I've come around to, but I am 100% Diamond Dave. I'm with you on both of those things. I Diamond Dave era Van Halen is way better, but I've mellowed out on Sammy Hagar Van Halen. I think I think when, when we get into our late 40s, we just become shitty. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, we just turn into these like Barca lounger chairs and that's our life now. I'm a chair, whatever. Oh, is Hager on now? Okay. Would you like to sit on me, Miss Yvonne? But I got to mention, it's great to see the actual Moog. And they say Moog. What, what instrument was that? That's Moog. Really? And that was... Robert Moog was there. And it's like competent Magic Alex is the Moog guy. It's like Magic Alex who knows what he's doing. Right. Not so Magic Robert. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Science Robert. <laughs> is the Moog used on the Rockford Files theme? It's got to be, yeah. I don't know what else that could be, unless like a jukebox being plugged in or something. <laughs> <laughs> So next up is a hard day's night. They get into the that that opening chord and the chord at the front. So because this was the opening to this film, yeah. Beatles' first film, bang, we do the chord, but he's augmented it. You can see he's thinking film. Bang. I never knew that the George solo in the uh, the bridge was half speed. I never knew that. I did know that. I think it's in the Lewison book. And that's why when you listen to the BBC version, they go to the recording. Yes, they, they edit it in. It's, it's a bad edit. Yeah. It's a, it's a total like, what? Edit. It's, it's, it's a Beatles movie medley edit is what, yeah. it, is what it sounds like. 
here's something for you. There's a couple mixing things here that are weird because both Babies in Black and Hard Day's Night are in stereo, and a lot of other stereo tracks are in mono. And there was such a fuss, if you remember, in 87 when the CDs came out, that the first four British albums would just be mono, no stereo. That was corrected in 09, of course. Yeah. But it's funny, all these years later, that they're playing with the stereo in the primitive four-track stuff, and the complex stuff is in mono, despite the availability of 5.1. It's not all the time, but it's an interesting dynamic in the audio mix. Clearly intentional. I'd be interested to find out why. Yeah, that is something I did not notice. Here's one thing I do know. I know when they mess around with Tomorrow Never Knows that that would be the stereo version because it has that feedback sound in there, which yep. is not on the mono. I, You know, I didn't have my ears out for that. You know, I just assumed they were just working off the stereos for some reason because that probably gave them more to play with. Well, I still work at a Circuit City, and <laughs> there's a good sale on double cassette decks. <laughs> I got you down a gizmo for electric machismo, some amplitude for the radical dude. We're tuned into your attitude. Come to the place and welcome technology with a heart. Welcome to Circuit City, where service is state-of-the-art. I liked hearing all the uh, Tomorrow Never Knows isolated the tape loop stuff on its own track going through the song. And then like when you heard the song fade back in, you're like, yeah, that's exactly where it goes. I had an old tape recorder that you could put, make a loop instead of the two reels of tape. Uh You could make a little loop that would go round and round and round. But when you set it against the banner. Sounds like it's played. That was awesome. And then they play the Anthology 2 version, and Paul says, uh, pretty stoned, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's take one. Take one sounds like it's a different day, but it's not. It's the same day as they recorded the, the master. Now, that's alternative. That's cool. Different beat. Yeah. So, pretty stoned, if you ask me. It's wild. It's such a great song, and it's so weird because if you're the Beatle fan who only has one or the Red Album or the Blue Album or any of the out-of-print 70s, 80s compilations, you don't know the song. The only compilation it's been on is your favorite, File Under Rock. (laughs) My favorite. Well, that's the one I endorse. Like Every time we mention File Under Rock, I get one-tenth of a a cent uh, (laughs) of Canadian cent. So... This is a deal I just have with Beatles Canada LTD. So, yeah, no, if you can get <laughs> File Under Rock, definitely check it out. Hashtag Sitarpeggio. <laughs> Sitarpeggio. What do you remember when you first met Ringo? We first met Ringo by seeing him playing in Hamburg. There was one thing we were particularly impressed with, which was the drum part to What Did I Say, the Ray Charles record that I loved. Not many drummers could do that. Yeah. Oh, he could play like that. Yeah. So he's like, wow. They talk about meeting Ringo now. This is their transition. 
And Paul talks about how great Ringo was able to drum the drum part and what I'd say. They played the Ray Charles original. Yeah. Is this the greatest rock and roll song of all time? Um, No. <laughs> all right. This is the Untitled Beatles podcast. I just feel like this is just like. I think it's a great song, but I don't. I think it's more R&B to me. I hear R&B. I don't hear rock and roll. But that's me. Well, stand up. It's high noon. I, I can't wait till next time I see you because I'm going to punch you square in the nose. I told you I'd have my chance. We're going to duke it out like on the Activision Atari version of boxing. <laughs> So we saw him doing that in Hamburg. Hearing Paul gush about Ringo, check out what Paul says about Ringo when his arrival. We were thrilled. He lifted us. It was different. I looked at the others. It was just a moment, a big moment. Wow, I can hope he, I hope he stays with us. He just brought the whole band together. It's just plays into my theory of my God, Pete Best, you and your one drum fill. Doodle 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 do. Bye bye. Poor Pete. Hello, little girl. I learned that Ringo came up with the Get Back Shuffle. I mean, there's the early takes where Ringo's playing more of a straight beat, but I didn't realize he brought the I didn't know that was his rhythm. I thought that yeah. was something Paul directed him to do. That gallop. Ringo, like on a song like Get Back, we're just kicking it around as a little jam. And then he gets on the doors. Do you prefer Get Back or Gink Rouse? <laughs> I like the vocals more on whatever, Get Roush or whatever that. Get Roush! Get Roush! Get like Dynam House! I hope we see that in the Peter Jackson thing. Yeah, that's good, Jackie. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they'll use that footage and, and instead insert C. Leap Dick to make it seem like they did that live. Well, did you hear, you know, that Anthony Bourdain documentary, right? Is using yeah. AI to, to say things that he never said. So, like, that's what I'm scared of about everything, really. But, like, will, will Peter Jackson be using any of that? And so, like, when George walks out of the sessions and quits the Beatles... And John says something like, oh, we'll get Clapton, you know, if he doesn't show up for three days. Is it going to turn into like, get George back? The, they'll use Paul's words from Give My Regards to Broad Street. We got to find Harry in the tapes. We got to find George. <laughs> I mean, you don't think George Harrison would go and do a stupid thing like that, do you? Yes, I do. Another deep cut is the next one here, Tony, and that's another girl from the Help album. And this was a, another moment I mentioned earlier with uh, Michelle from Rubber Soul. I can't wait for another new remix of Help. Help probably needs it more than any other album. Yeah. This sounds great. You know, the Abbey Road remix for the anniversary in 2019, I get it. It was the 50th anniversary. Abbey Road kind of sounded great already. These mid-period albums need to sound better. I hope they're next on the docket for uh, for the coffers at 
EMI, Calderstone, Apple, whatever you call it. If they want to keep making money, they'll do it. Yeah. A one, a two, a three, four, I have got I love hearing all these like deep cuts. Yeah, I was not expecting to hear another girl. You know, it's not like a one of his even great songs. It's one of his good songs. I love that they give it some love. I mean, that's the funny thing now, because you've got the opportunity to go back in. Yeah. I would have those couple of little licks that I miss, where you go do do do, and you can see I got yeah. stuck. Yeah. You'd go back in and fix that. It's real. It's real, real, all right. It adds to the energy of the track of like, oh, it's so cooking that he can barely even play it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's it's running away. Okay, so, I'll I'll go with that explanation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had you in school. <laughs> it's a very telling moment because. Rick Rubin had a very supportive structure at the schools he went to, like the AV department head in, in high school supported his arts. And it was actually a teacher that helped him start his first punk rock band, which was called The Pricks, you know? Really? Yeah. So Rick Rubin actually got some positive reinforcement out of the whole school experience. But then why masturbate in the theater? You had a big movie. You had a Saturday morning show. I get it. Paul Rubens worked with Public Enemy, but I don't understand the theater masturbating. No, no, no. Okay, so Paul Rubens was from the Groundlings. That's uh, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, that was a character he right. created at the Groundlings. I, I loved when Pee Wee Herman did all those Ernest Goes to Camp movies. <laughs> so put Cablevision up on your screen. Call him today. Know what I mean? So the, 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 the next one up is Live and Let Die, a minor song on Paul's catalog. This is a great one. Seeing this actually reminded me because the, the songs, I don't want to say cliche, but it's in every McCartney set list. It's become so literally and figuratively explosive in concert. Yeah. You almost lose the greatness of the song. So this was one watching the breakdown. And Rick Rubin is so enamored by it. Uh, at the end, he goes, see, the song isn't an ending. It's like it tells you something is beginning is a great moment. So when you wrote it, it would be like. Which is very filmic. Yeah, and it's, and it's not an ending. You know, it doesn't tell yeah. you something's over. No. It kind of tells you something's starting. I should have done. Yeah, it's talking about the, the cinematic quality of the song. Um, I love how it's intercut between Paul at the piano during the mellow moments and then at the board for the big the big orchestra moments. Yeah. What does it matter to you? Completely unexpected. Because it was in the Caribbean. Yeah. Great. You got to give the Now, we get to one of my favorite moments of the whole thing. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Is that the Flintstones? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. 
Check my machine. This is a masterpiece. Tony. This is a Brazilian nightclub masterpiece. Great. So's hope of deliverance. I don't need to hear that <laughs> dissected. We're four <laughs> episodes. Wait, 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 what my notes are what's next? Is he gonna go to average person from pipes of peace? Like why? <laughs> why this one? Because the kids love this, because the hipsters like this song. This is this is TJ, this is us. We're the second generation. We're irony. This is ironic t-shirt. Yeah. That's exactly what this is. Yeah, like uh, my sophomore year of college, 94, I just we put a pictures of Barney outside of our room. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a joke. <laughs> that's that's kind of 94 irony. Like, check my machine. This song was a B-side. This was not on the original album. It was, I think, in the first Capitol issue in the late 80s. Yeah. They threw this on there. And now on the archive collection, it's on there. I don't, it's a cool song. It's one of my favorite electronica songs he's ever done. Not electronica, but, uh, you know, experimental songs. But with his catalog, I feel like it's wasted space. It's a wasted opportunity. Perhaps. I'm glad he did it. I think it's great. What I think is goofy, though, is them trying to intellectually dissect it. Like Rick Rubin's trying to be like, yeah. you know, there's some some samples that work after three times and you don't know why. And I, I get it. He's got to, they've got to talk about it. Like jazz, really, you know, like yeah. repeating a, a, an idea, yeah, phrase over and over, like finding new and new ways to interpret it. Really interesting. Ultimately, it's a dance club song, and there's really not much to say about dance music. Like you dance to it, you know, you're not having a conversation. Well, you can dance for inspiration, like Madonna said. And you can dance for inspiration. The conversation's a little interstitial. Tony and I talk more Madonna off air. Tony's favorite is La Isla Bonita. I do like that one. Mine is Who's That Girl? Who's That Girl? Well, then we close with You Know My Name. Look up the number for the credits. I think that's a great way to end my favorite episode of McCartney 321, episode four. So what makes it your favorite? We have two more to go. What makes this one your favorite? Is it Check My Machine? It's Check My Machine. Yeah. No, that's it. That's all I wanted to hear. No, I <laughs> Tomorrow Never Knows, The Moog. I feel like we're getting into like the the fun stuff. Like at the top of the show, I said the candy. Like to me, this is like the the tastiest stuff, the deepest cut stuff and it's the silly stuff. Maxwell Silver Hammer is a weird song. I love that they gave it some time, you know, and talked about the Moog and then that goofy bass line and how it sounded like a tuba. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite episode? Yeah, it might be episode five, the one that we're about to tackle. I love how it starts with Lovely Rita. And Rick Rubin loves that bass line. He is so animated. The look in his eyes and his bopping when he's looking at Paul during <laughs> that bass line is really neat. Yeah, he's a little kid with no shoes. Somebody buy that kid some shoes. <laughs> Standing by a parking meter When I caught a glimpse of Rita Filling in the ticket in a little white book In a cap, she looked much older And the bag across her shoulder Made her look a little like a military man Yeah, the episode is 
couldn't you play it straighter? Which is fun, which is fun. And yeah, talking about how he started as a guitarist and had stage fright at a club called the Broadway. I got terrible stage fright at a place in Liverpool um, called Broadway, <laughs> funnily enough. Oh, it just came my time to play the solo. And I, I like froze, you know, and sticky fingers and nothing would work. And after that, I thought, right, no more lead. Well, and he inadvertently mentions two other great classic rock bands when he says he got terrible stage fright and he got sticky fingers. So he loves both the band and the Stones. See the man with the stage fright Just standing up there to give it all his might And he got caught in the spotlight It's a bitch! So the, the next song on here, and I'm holding up something I want you to see. I've got a vinyl copy of McCartney's Unplugged album. And the reason I want you to see this, there's a sticker on it, Sound Warehouse. It's marked June 1991. Nice. This was 1099. I couldn't believe they had it. It's it's in Spanish. All the liner notes are in Spanish oh. on the back. Oh, that's so cool. So I don't know where Sound Warehouse would have got this, but... Paul trotted out I Lost My Little Girl for the Unplugged show for MTV, and then I think did it on a couple of tours. But this is one, it's a way more complex song than I ever gave credit for. Like, the first song he wrote, and he even talks to Rick Rubin, he seems surprised by how complex this was. It's a nice moment. Yeah, I like the idea that the bass line would go up. Then I wanted this to come down. So you get that little thing. That was the big thing for me. Yeah. So it was just I woke up late this morning. My head was in a whirl. Only then I realized I lost my little girl. Yeah, it's yeah. I will say that is a really cool, cool moment. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Again, not my favorite song, but hey, yeah. Again, I would probably prefer to hear a different song, but I wouldn't get that story with a different song. So You want temporary secretary here. <laughs> I do. On acoustic, there is a guitar on there. <laughs> she could be a diplomat if you want a girl like that. She could get a veggie booster if she doesn't want funky booster. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Favorite Julian Lennon song. Maybe the world is blind. <laughs> or just a little The next song on here is This Boy, and it's funny to hear Paul talk about how Brian Epstein, and Brian gets a little love in this here, too, which is great. Finally. Bri yeah, finally. Brian told the band in order to play like the um, the cabaret clubs, they had to smarten up and do their ballad songs. It's a great, maybe one of the best camera shots in the whole uh, series of episodes, Tony, is the close-up as Paul's singing along to John's This Boy lyric is a stunning visual. <laughs> then we get John's... And it harkens to the the Harrison documentary, where Harrison is watching uh, a clip of them performing "This Boy" on Sullivan or something like that. Yeah, right? that's right. Good song though. This boy. 
<laughs> it's still a good song. It, it's a great song, and one that, as we've talked about, that has a different meaning in the rest of the world, where it was the B side of "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Yeah. In the states, it's the third song on "Meet the Beatles." So, yeah, almost more important than being the B side to "Want to Hold Your Hand" because "Meet the Beatles," you you, you kick off with uh, "Want to Hold Your Hand," so are standing there, and then you get to this boy, and uh, it's it's an important introduction to American fans. The next song is something, and they've they've kind of teased us with this song. We heard the organ part earlier in one of the episodes, and then the orchestral part earlier. Now we actually get into it. They're at the board, and they're examining it. Rick seems enamored with the bass line, which, if I recall, George thought it was a bit busy, if I recall. I think I read the same thing. Yeah. Whatever the case may be, it is it is a cool bass line, you know? Would a simpler bass line make the song better in your eyes, ears? No, a, a simpler bass line takes the song down a notch. This bass line is what makes it a, a Beatles song. Rick Rubin actually says, what's going on with the bass? It's the greatest thing I've ever heard. He then says, how does this exist? You're asking me when my love grows. It's doing so much work that really is in the service of the record. It's pretty adventurous, you know. A classic George song. All right. What also is funny, though, is once the song's over, Paul's like, all right. <laughs> like, let's do my songs. It's ex- <laughs> exactly the- it. And then there's a, a really telling Paul moment here, Tony. Rick Rubin says, Would it be whoever wrote the song would sort of yeah, have the vision would, for the yeah. project for yeah. that? And then I'd butt in. <laughs> and they'd hate me for it. <laughs> I'd go, but it's a good idea, boys. And they both laugh. Yeah. But there's truth in that. Paul's That's Paul describing how they broke up in one anecdote. Yeah. But then we go to another George song, Taxman, which Paul had done the solo on, which is one of the most amazing guitar solos on a Beatles record. I thought you loved the All You Need Is Love guitar solo. It's George's most unfortunate recorded moment is that that's that's a rough solo and all you need is love. Yeah, I okay. I'll have to give it another set of ears. I I've never heard anything like particularly terrible about it. It he kind of quits midway through. <laughs> he does listen. Casey's gonna cue it up for you right now. Just as I told you, quitter. <laughs> well, they'll get Clapton in there if he doesn't come back. It's interesting because Paul says, I talked to George about the solo on Taxman. He said, okay, you play it. And it's George's song. And George didn't even want to hear about it. George was like, fine, you want to play the solo, Paul? You play it. And it's a great bass line. Paul's playing the bass, too, on one of his more inventive bass lines. Which I believe opens this episode out. And 
we get into the yeah the bass playing of James Jamerson. He was saying like, well, by this time I was listening to Motown and wanting to hear that on on my records, and you actually get to hear the isolated bass on uh, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." Oh my God, Tony, that's a live version of the song that they're doing. That is one of my five favorite non-Beatles songs to begin with. Wow! And that live version just astonished me. And then when they isolate just those uh, vocals and the bass with Marvin and Jamerson. It's incredible. Don't punish me of brutality. Come on, talk to me so you can see oh, what's going on. What's going on? Telling quote from Paul, you can actually control the band with the bass. Yes. Yes. That's like a thesis of, of this movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love I love the guy and I, I get it. I get it. Uh, you know, my famous occasion with bass radically altering the whole attitude of the song was when John came in. Yeah, and then it goes right into the come together, how it, it started as basically <laughs> identical to the to the Chuck Berry song, You Can't Catch Me, which is what got him into trouble. Well, it, it was Chuck Berry's, uh, uh, the publisher, Morris Levy, who John had agreed to do that Roots album with. Right. That briefly came out, then was bootlegged forever. Yes, John Lennon sings 15 great rock and roll hits, all in one fantastic album for just $4.98 or $5.98 for eight-track tape. Here's how to order. Uh, but it was cool then to hear Paul say, like, okay, we're, we can't just cover that song and call it something else. <laughs> and yeah, turning it into this kind of swampy country stomp thing, you know, not country, but swampy muscle shoals kind of a vibe. Yeah. It's cool seeing Paul play that bass line. I've never heard him do that. Yeah. When Paul launches into that is a magic moment. Yeah. Now we never see his face, so it could be a body double. It, it might actually, that could have been Rick Rubin just p with Paul's clothes on. We don't know. But yeah, or other Paul, the one that didn't die, the real Paul McCartney. Now am I dead? Now am I dead? So it was a skiffle song. To your point, when John kind of brought it in, almost a skiffle song that sounded just like the Chuck Berry tune. And then they developed the riff. Rick Rubin says the riff is the signature of the song, and that's right. There's so much going on and come together. In fact, the way come together starts as we talk about opening Beatle trio songs on the show quite a bit, but. It's real weird because you've got one of the great John songs ever on Abbey Road, followed by one of the great George songs ever, followed by a novelty Paul song. Yeah. So Abbey Road does not do Paul great favors at the top of the record. It ends all Paul, yeah. but you've got two of the greatest ever by John and George. And as we've seen in this doc, two songs Paul contributed to incredibly well. So tell me first about Beatles Breakup. Mm. I knew we'd done something great. Yes. We'd had a lot of fun in the studio, oh. and I was sad to see it break up. Yeah. I thought I'd be in this band forever. Mm. And uh, I was heartbroken, really. 
and I kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. I went up to a farm in Scotland and just became a sort of hippie farmer, which was great. Motorcars, handlebars, bicycles for two, broken hearted yeah, and then they get into the breakup and his farm life in Scotland. We hear some of junk. They actually explore junk. There's another telling moment where it's the, the scatting moment in the song. And Rick says, jokingly, Never finished the lyrics. <laughs> oh, this is jazz. <laughs> this is jazz. He goes, this is jazz, yeah. Right, which he's also joking, right? But it's one of those moments where it's like, no, not so fast. Yeah. Kirk Claudio, you can't be joking with me that way. Yeah. Do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. 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 This is the stuff that why Phil Collins is mad at him or whatever. <laughs> Next up, maybe I'm amazed. I mean, one could argue Paul's favorite Paul song is here, there, and everywhere. One could argue maybe I'm amazed is Paul's best overall song. It probably is. Wasn't it cool, though, to hear that unused guitar part? How <laughs> weird. Just that high note that's in there. I love hearing Paul's reactions. We didn't mention it yet, but back in episode whatever it was, when they do Lucy in the Sky, and it's in the trailer and all that, but he's got the fader up on the vocal, and Paul hits like a bum note. This is why we don't go into tapes. He doesn't want us to see any of the stains or anything. That's why you don't play the tapes or whatever yes. he said there. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. There's a conversation they have where John uh, Paul thinks John's first solo album is going to be called Lennon. Yeah. And there's a bit of historical misdirect here too, because the press release that accompanied the release of the McCartney album was the first Beatle to say, I'm done. I'm out. There won't be another. Be the Beatles may reform. It won't be with me. Remember that, that press release that McCartney released with the first solo McCartney record? Yes. That kind of, there was the fight about when the Let It Be album was coming out. It was supposed to be right around the same time. The Beatles were like, don't release this album. Paul's like, fuck you. You've been dicks to me. My turn to be a dick to you. That's all lost in the telling of this part of the story. And that's not real. That's not a great thing. Another interesting moment is when Rick Rubin pulls out his phone and, and uses that John Lennon quote about Paul, Paul is, is one, one of, of the most innovative bass players that ever played bass, and half of the stuff that's going on now is directly ripped off from his Beatle period. He's always been a bit coy about his bass playing, but he's a great, great musician. Did I write that? That is John Lennon. That's John. <laughs> yeah. All right. Come on, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. It was curious that he left out the one part uh -huh. in there that says that he was an egomaniac about everything else. <laughs> I had the same thought that felt, I mean, warts and all is part of the history, especially if you're going to end with Paul being emotional about the John compliment, you got to include the whole quote. Right. Yes. And no. Right. Like this is, this is the, this is the hard thing about doing these things. It's like, Who's going to be the guy that says that to his face? Like, here's this quote, and he's going to call him an egomaniac. Yeah, but then you become Bill Barr and, and erase history. Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. Right, right. I mean, this is 
this is Paul taking away the complete Beatles because that one line in there was like, oh, the Magical Mystery Tour, nothing happened or whatever. <laughs> like, no, things did happen. Uh, Steven Spielberg calls it an important influence on his film career. <laughs> Everybody says it's a great little film. Who said that to you? <laughs> <laughs> William right. Bendix, like, right? <laughs> I think Magic Alex and Mal and all those guys. Neil, they got a, a free ticket and a free bowl of soup for seeing the film. Um, but yes, it is interesting, and uh, I understand why they left it out, but it's also not entirely accurate. And Beatle fans who are familiar with that Lennon interview with with uh, with Playboy know that there's more to the quote. Exactly. Yeah, you got to seek it out. But uh, it ends with Helter Skelter, which is a song I wish they would have done at the board. Now, Tony, uh, who, who needs Helter Skelter when you can dissect Check My Machine for six minutes? <laughs> a song that nobody has really ever heard. Um, unless you're in a Brazilian dance club. Thank Back you. Back in Brazil. Back in Brazil. So let's get to uh, the final episode, episode six. And now we get into yesterday. It was about time. You can't do the show without hearing it. We've talked yesterday on the show before in our singles episode and our greatest hits ep- or compilations episode. This is not one of my 30 favorite Beatles songs, but I realize how important and influential it is. Yeah. So I would be surprised they didn't cover it, and I'm glad they did. It's a lot of the retelling of the, of the story that we've heard many times, but it's part of the song. As I'm just thankful he didn't do the scrambled eggs, I love your legs, hey, Jimmy Fallon, James Corden, Magic Johnson, every late night host, let's do this story. Yeah. It was, uh, I'm glad that didn't come up. Yeah, that one had been played out. Who knows? Maybe he did bring it out, but it got it got edited. I, I do, though, like that he uh, brings in the element of magic in that he dreamt this song and was trying to figure out what is this. Um, and I like how magic is almost a theme in this uh, in this episode. This is the shortest episode of all of it them, is. by the way. Well, Paul yeah. even asked, do you believe in magic? And again, he rips off the loving spoonful. That's right. one of my Beatles frustrations. The one band I like more is Love and Spoonful. And again, <laughs> Paul rips them off. Did you ever have to make up your mind? I also like how they, they mentioned that they didn't write anything down and they, how they called it the bardic tradition. I thought that's a great excuse and yeah. I have to nab that. There's the bardic tradition and then there's the Bartles and James tradition where you drink wine <laughs> coolers in a porch when you're about to die. So if you're tired of having your ice just plain, add some Bartles and James. We hope you appreciate this suggestion, and thank you for your support. I do love Paul saying, I thought I was Ray Charles after they show a clip of Kansas City. I thought I was Ray Charles in my head. You know, I love that about Paul. I, I, I love that his influences were so vast and varied. And the, the Venn diagram of Beatle influences, they're unique to each Beatle, but they also overlap in a lot of ways, too. And as we've said a million times, it's one of the great things about that band was how open they were to all the influences around them. They took a little bit of everything, vocally, musically, compositionally, everything. Yeah, yeah, get to hear a, a taste of James Ray's if you're going to make a fool of somebody. Tony, 
I've never heard this. I love this. I, I want to hear the song every day now. And apparently it's from the same LP that George had, which he must have gotten Benton, Illinois, with his sister Louise. Right. The same album. And it's cool to hear Paul sing a bit of I Got My Mind Set on You. <laughs> You're right, yeah. On record, George had the album, James Ray album. And he took, he later, much later, he got, got my mind set on yeah. you. That was the James Ray off that wow. album. Wow. So George remembered that. Around the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, George has this massive hit, one of the biggest hits he ever had, while Paul doesn't even put his new song, Once Upon a Long Ago, on the All the Best album in the States. So their careers are in a fit. For the first time ever, George is like way on top. Paul's trying to figure things out. Then comes the Rock Hall of Fame. Then's the Wilburys for George. It wasn't until Flowers in the Dirt a couple years later where Paul was able to kind of be taken seriously again. So to hear Paul sing that and refer to George singing Got My Mind Set On You is an interesting Beatle historic moment for me. Yeah, as we get old and mellow out, like those things that used to eat at us and like, ah, things, uh, I'm mad at you because I got the tambourine wrong and my life's for all that, you know, that's the a John quote. quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, as you mellow out, you're just like, oh, good for him. He got the hit when I was like in a weird Spies Like Us place or whatever, you know? Why, and Why didn't they do Spies Like Us at the mixing desk? <laughs> ooh, ooh, what do you do? That song, you cannot buy that on a compact disc in 2021. No. I did like hearing the studio chatter going into, like, what are they going to go into? Quite, quite brisk. Uh, moderato, Foxtrot. Is it? Oh, of course I couldn't see. One, two, three, four. <laughs> and your bird can sing, which they spent some time on. It's great. One of my top five favorite Beatles songs. This whole segment's one of my favorites of the entire film. It's so great how they get into this incredible song. Maybe on the list of most underrated Beatles album tracks. Yeah. My note is, for any other band, this is their biggest hit. For any other band, this song's their ticket to the Hall of Fame. For the Beatles, it's on Yesterday and Today in the States and Revolver Worldwide. Yeah, and Buried on Revolver, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. We get to hear that the isolated bass, hand claps, hi-hat, and tambourine like are, are all on that one track. A lot of information, as Paul would say. Yeah. And that's cool that there was a hi-hat overdub. So like Ringo is playing the regular beat, but that's what all those little like chicka-chicks are. And there's a little offbeat moment with the, not out of time, but on the upbeats is what I'm trying to say, with the hi-hat that I had never heard before because it's it got lost in the mix. But check it out. There's two Rick Rubin moments. One is glorious. One kind of begins a bit of a Rick Rubin error. 
The good moment is Rick Rubin says, you guys were excited making it, and we got to feel your excitement. The energy is contagious. And that's a perfect way to describe this song and why the no Beatles song except maybe Ubla D Ubla Da and Maxwell Silver Hammer sounds studied. They all have a feeling of spontaneity. And and even those songs have their spontaneity their moments of spontaneity. Paul's giggling in Maxwell Silver Hammer. Right. The, the, some of the Ubla D Ubla Da isn't joyless. It's just maybe knowing how many times they had to run it takes some of the joy out of it to me. But this song is pure joy. Paul singing along. Like to connect Paul with this song is just a breathtaking moment. And the final chord, the song resolves. Yeah. Never heard that before. That no. was mind blowing. Yeah. It's amazing. Good group. <laughs> so I love that we got to hear that. It, it's pretty neat. I want to mention quickly the bad Rick Rubin moment is he asks, was there ever a time you guys would sing unison and not in harmonies? And yeah, there's like a two dozen times in the early records where they would sing in harmony and double track each other. Right. Right. That seems like an, a, a, an inappropriate question. Well, maybe he was trying to get him to mention a song, you know, as opposed to just like a general thing. But you're right. There probably were so many that Paul couldn't remember. And honestly, I have a hard time remembering which ones are harmony and which ones are in unison. I mean, definitely this boy, they're all just saying the same note. This boy. <laughs> what a great version of this boy. You're known for your cover work. And that's probably, and your co cover girl. Get your bass in that walk. Then we get to hear there and everywhere. And they're at the board. And they talk about the writing process, which is, is pretty cool, how Paul would show up at John's house and sometimes John wasn't ready. I used to go out to his house to write. He wasn't always ready, should we say. So I'm just sitting out with my guitar and started working on this one. After we'd made this record, we were going to film in Austria with the, for the film Help. Yes. And me and John shared a, a ski chalet. So we were taking our boots off and stuff. We were playing the album. I remember him saying, oh, I like this one. And you know what? That was like enough. Yeah. That was like great praise coming from John. The chronology is off here, though. This is one of those things where Paul's memory has things wrong. His memory's almost full, Tony. Because <laughs> he's talking about going up to film Help yeah. in Austria or whatever, right? And listening to this song, which hadn't been recorded yet. Didn't Dave Dexter put this on the early Beatles? <laughs> Didn't he oh, you're replace right. Misery with this? I was thinking Revolver, but you're right. Dave Dexter <laughs> used it in, yeah, it was the early Beatles and the Four Seasons on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a bit of weird uh, a chronology there. It's also, as we said uh, 17 episodes ago, probably Paul's favorite song that he wrote. It's interesting. He's not done this one live very often. He did this in 93. He did it in, on the 02 and then the European tour afterwards. But he really doesn't do this one live. It must be kind of hard to pull off. 
I guess, yeah. It is simple, but it's got to be good, I think. There's a lot riding on those harmonies. I would think it would be trepidatious to do live. To lead a better life I need my love to be here There's a quote around here where, and this is used in the promos, where Paul says, at the time I was working with this bloke called John. Now I look back and I was working with John Lennon. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, he he transcended just being a bloke. He became this legend, you know. They all they all did. From bloke to joke, the real John <laughs> Lennon tonight on Gawker TV. Hey, this just in. I should this uh, Beatle news in the middle of this. Uh, I have a friend who is working on a Ringo Starr masterclass coming up, so that'll be coming out. I don't know when, but they're shooting it. Like. Uh, in Los Angeles. so It's awesome. I've already had my Ringo Starr Masterclass in that Jeff Lynne documentary where they're talking about recording Free as a Bird. My favorite Ringo story ever <laughs> where he goes, Jeff wanted me to play to a click track. I looked at Jeff and I said, I am the fucking click track. <laughs> and I, of course, did the Ringo Starr Master Cleanse, which is uh, Heinz Baked Beans. That's right. Suitcases of them in <laughs> India. Yeah, there's a plug for you. <laughs> <laughs> More music, more music, more music. So we're into the kind of the the closer right now. And, um, you know, unfortunately, this is not Summer's Day song from McCartney 2. <laughs> probably is most popular. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's front parlor. Next up, the dance, re- the Jelly Bean Benitez dance remix of Say, Say, Say. Why? Why are we doing this? Um, but, yeah, uh, we get into a day in the life, which is a fitting way to end it. Uh, you know, we, I could argue the best Beatles song, you know, ever written or the most important, the great John and Paul fusion. Tell me about John Cage. I've, I always knew who he was, knew he was experimental, but watching him toss equipment off of, of a table, I'm like, what am I missing? I think it's great. Uh, it's you're right. It's, That's why I'm asking you. Enlighten me. It's uh, you know I don't know that much either. I, if I recall, he's the one that did the silent piece, right? Called like uh, oh, New Newtopian International <laughs> Anthem. <laughs> right. He was the first guy to do that. I think. I think. Uh, Stop. Yeah, it's John Cage's four minutes thirty three seconds. It's just four minutes and thirty three seconds of silence. So yeah, so he's playing with the medium. It's he's avant garde, or as Harrison liked to say, avant garde a clue, which <laughs> I've so always funny. loved. I love that one. But it's similar to like when I think Zappa came on when he was young. He either came on, I forget if it was Ed Sullivan or the Steve Allen show or one of those black and white variety shows, and he played a bicycle, right? It's finding music in the unexpected places, like uh, later would be done with industrial music with banging on refrigerators or whatever with a metal rod or whatever the hell you're doing, you know? Mal Evans. Mal Evans. (laughs) Right, Mal Anvil Evans. But it's exploring what Paul was getting at when we were talking earlier about him getting into like Stockhausen and experimental music and all that. I wonder if in the 80s when Paul had his creative uh, issues, if he was inspired by uh, Gallagher. (laughs) Because Gallagher was 80s John Cage, right? Smash a watermelon and... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in a way that... And same thing with Letterman. Letterman uh, with the five-story tower, throwing things off the five-story tower in New Rochelle, New York, or crushing things with a steamroller or... You know, later uh, with the 80-ton hydraulic press, all that stuff. Yeah, there's something going on there that speaks to all that. 
Yeah. Auto-destructive art, as, as Yoko did, and then The Who later did, too, when they were smashing their gear up. That's right. We've, we've seen all that many times from some legendary artists. So Paul gets credit for telling the orchestra how to play. I never knew that was definitive, that it was Paul who told the orchestra to kind of build up there. I thought that was a George Martin thing or a John thing. That's Paul. I wonder. I would. I wonder if Paul came in there and then with the initial idea and then George tidied it up. Because why does the French horn wait all till the end to go, you know, and why did the string players go? in time or in rhythm or whatever, less random. And the trumpet players were more random. I, w- I wonder if George patched it together. That's my, that would be my theory. So when they talk about recording the day in the life piano chord and they're listening to it and Rick Rubin says, if you listen, it almost sounds like it changes. Yeah. You start to hear little harmonics yeah. and things, yeah. You know, there's the magic again. And we fade to black and go to the credits. It's a neat moment. He kind of smiles, he looks humble, and we're done. And it's a really, it's a very emotional and powerful out. And it's also cool. He ties it into the magic he talked about at the top of the episode with yesterday, like... There's a showmanship about it as well. Like, he knows how to put on a show. He's been doing this since he was... Mach Schau, Mach Schau. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we have the Germans to thank, really, ultimately, for this whole endeavor. <laughs> you know, my people would disagree, but we'll save that for a different episode. For those of you who are playing Untitled Beatles podcast bingo, TJ hasn't made a Jewish comment yet. So, Sorry. <laughs> Of course, the credits end with the end. What other what other song? I mean, yes, it should have been Front Parlor, but they chose the end. Uh, this one was new to me, too. What's this on? <laughs> I think it's on Hey Jude. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, look, we've devoted a lot of time to this, and unfortunately, we had a, uh, a bad boy anniversary issue planned that we didn't have time to get to. But Tony, doing multiple episodes of this, I- I'm glad. I-, I hope our loyal listeners and fans and friends we've made are cool that we've done this because this to me feels like how anthology felt many years ago. This wasn't as anticipated, it wasn't as revelatory because you didn't have Ringo or George contributing, but. In terms of a Beatle giving his thoughts on a ton of important songs to another highly regarded musician and producer, we may never see anything like this again as long as Paul or Ringo are alive, and I'm really grateful. I give this an A+. Are there faults? Is there whitewashing? Are there, are there some historical inaccuracies? Yeah, all those things are true. It doesn't diminish the power, entertainment value, and information featured in the six episode. It's a massive gift in a year where we're also going to get six hours of uh, Let It Be movie. Yeah, I feel very grateful or whatever as a fan that this year has been so mm, bountiful. That's the word I was looking for. We have so much. Like we still have at this writing, we still have all things must pass. And then, yeah, Peter Jackson's thing, man. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. It has been bountiful, Tony. And the Beatles have often been like a quicker picker upper. (laughs) Hey, bounty sure carries its weight and it makes spills disappear like magic. 
Magic, magic. See, now there's the magic again. That's Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. Well, thank you for listening. If you like the show, uh, feel free to review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to things. Smush that subscribe button if you can do that from where you're sitting at the moment. Tell your friends. Thank you, TJ. Yeah, I don't do this for the fans. Get my coat. <laughs> Thank you, Casey Baker. Next week, uh, well, what are we doing? What, what's next week, man? Well, I think the Archive Deluxe Edition of Real Music that comes for the first time ever with an extended dance remix of the Beatles movie medley, now edited together worse. Untitled Beatles Podcast. Like and subscribe. <laughs>